Good day, my friends, and welcome to the Craig Shapiro Tennis Podcast. Today's show is brought to you by the legendary Sergio Tacchini, brand worn by John McEnroe, Vitas Gerolitis, Novak Djokovic, and Gabriella Sabatini. Check them out at SergioTacchini.com and use the code SHAP30 in all caps to receive 30% off of your order. Today's guest grew up in Lansing, Michigan, and after two years at Northwestern University, he turned pro. He reached the semis of Wimbledon twice and finaled the Australian Open and the U.S. Open. He won tournaments on all three surfaces, got to four in the world, and was a member of the 1995 Davis Cup championship team. He is the CEO of the International Tennis Hall of Fame, a post he has held since 2014. Todd Martin is today's guest. Cool, cool. My man, are you in Newport right now? Are you at the Hall of Fame? Yeah, I am. I'm in my office. What's the weather in Newport? The weather today is spectacular. It's probably going to get up to high 50s. Beautiful, crisp, clear. No, we're holding on tight for the damp uh, dankness. But uh, yeah, for right now, we're good. And are the are the courts open? Are the, Is the grass playable? No. No, close the grass right at the beginning of October. Um we could play, right? I mean, they're like on a day like today, we could still play, but uh, in order to care for them and get them ready for the for the next uh, spring, we have to we have to close them early enough to where they can still have a growing season in the fall. Gentlemen, you hear former world number four carried one of the torches in American tennis for a really long time. Played two years at Northwestern. Is that, is that right? That is right. And that's Todd Martin, my man. It's so good to see you, and thanks for coming on. My pleasure, Craig. How many years you've lived in Rhode Island now? So I'm up here uh, now seven and a half years. My family uh, just uh, about almost almost six and a half now. When I was stringing the rackets back a hundred years ago, I, I have this memory of you being the only player in the history of my life because I. Even back then when I was doing rackets, considering myself something of a wordsmith, you corrected my grammar or you corrected <laughs> a word of mine. Um, and I have to say, you're the only pro tennis player that ever did that to me in my life. I, I wish I could remember exactly what happened, but I always remember that. So, so Craig, there's a story behind that. I, my family moved when I was in fifth grade, about two or three months into fifth grade, and we did... Uh, we hadn't done parts of speech in Ohio where I was living. And by the time we moved, it had already been done in Michigan. So I spent like three years straight figuring out how to catch up on all of it. And yeah, I used to, uh, gosh, I used to not know my head from my hindquarters on that. So I got obsessed. Is that, is that one of your things? Because that's one of my things. I'm a stickler for uh, proper use of uh, tenses and such and spelling. Yeah. I'm 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 bad on this one. I am uh, I've, I've, <laughs> almost annually. I get a gift of um, you know some sort of grammar, uh, some sort of uh, uh, satirical grammar book, or um, I've got I've got a sign in at that in the laundry room at the house that says I'm 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 silently correcting your grammar right now. You know. <laughs> Just, <laughs> Like I said, it's great to have you come on. As you know, we do a five-set format. The first set is the off-the-court report. 
What is happening at the Hall of Fame? I know that you announced the nominees. Things are in motion. Can you speak to that, please? Yeah, Craig. So we um, we have uh, six candidates on the ballot this uh, for induction next year. Um, 2022 is... Uh, only um, considering the player category. So, um, uh, and in addition to those six candidates, Leighton Hewitt was not able to travel from Australia this year to be inducted with the class of 21. Uh, so we've got him on the docket for, for next summer as well. The, the candidates this year, uh, Lisa Raymond, Cara uh, Black, Flavia Panetta, uh, Anna Ivanovich, Juan Carlos Ferrero, and Carlos Moya. Um, so we just concluded fan voting uh, earlier this week. Kara uh, Black uh, brought in uh, the entire population of Zimbabwe and most of uh, and most of Africa to vote, uh, and so she won the fan vote uh, and gets a little bit of a a little bit of a boost in the uh, official vote when it's uh, when that's concluded. Now. When will the inductees announce? When will that happen? So, so traditionally, and traditionally, I mean, we for the last several years uh, since I've been um, in this post, we have announced the class during the Australian Open on Rod Laver Arena. Get all the all the Hall of Famers that are down there on the court together. Um, uh, clearly, we've got uh, legends of legends in uh, in in Australia with. Emerson, Margaret Court, Rod Laver, Ken Rosewall, Frank Sedgman, among others. Um, this year, we won't do the same, uh, considering uh, the travel restrictions. Uh, so we'll uh, we'll end up in uh, announcing the class uh, late Q1 of uh, 22. Are you going to do that digitally? Are you going to do that uh, virtually, meta metaversically? Pro probably virtually at the end at the end of the day, but we'll uh, that remains to be seen. Have you been kneecapped from the COVID? Did that really uh, twist you out? Yeah, uh, I mean, COVID twisted everybody out. Um, it's been an, it's been an um, interesting experience as an executive to to navigate this. Um, uh, I I do um, have the benefit of having a. Um, uh, a board of governors that are 81 people deep and an executive board that are 21 um, individuals. And this is, these are, these are groups of people who have such um, remarkable business uh, experience that, you know, I got some pretty wise counsel last, uh, last March and um, uh, not group, not, not fun counsel, but great counsel. And uh, so uh, over the last two years, um, we have benefited from some, um, some government support with PPP loans, but mm. um, we've also performed really well. We, had, we adapted our efforts, and it's probably uh, fortuitous in two different ways for us. Um, as a nonprofit, uh, we were able to sustain, thanks to high net worth individuals, uh, additional support. Um, and the other is, we've got so much. Uh, we have so much content that we possess that last year, uh, when you know, our tournament was canceled, our events, uh, you know, induction was canceled, our gala was canceled, we really transitioned into a, a virtual output. 
of content from live chats to private fundraising, uh, you know, sort of small, intimate cocktail parties with a Hall of Famer uh, to, um, you know, really broad-based content uh, output. And without all those events for us to focus on or said a different way, be distracted by, uh, we were able to uh, demonstrate uh, real value in our um, in in our content and uh, and leverage it appropriately. So, if you would have told me a year and a half ago that um, the Hall of Fame would be in a better financial position uh, in at the end of 2020, 20, uh, sorry, at the end of twenty twenty one, I would have been. Uh, I would have would not have believed you um, for a moment, and, and but we are. We've had a really successful time, and with with a large tennis club operation here, um, we've seen the same boost in um, in uh, in the sport and the participation of the in the game as everybody else has across the across the globe. For our listeners, as a, a former uh, ball boy and uh, grounds crew at the Hall of Fame, I can tell you that the Hall of Fame is one of really the most undervalued gems in in tennis, in sports, I think, in Rhode Island for certain. It is just incredible. You walk through those doors, those giant doors, and it just, I get the chills just talking about it. It takes your breath away between the museum, the, the, the tournament that's played, the horseshoe veranda, right? What do they call that? The horseshoe veranda at the casino? The horseshoe piazza. Horseshoe piazza. Sorry, sorry. And, uh, and, and as you said, there's a vigorous program. People are there playing tennis, man. Oh, it, yeah. And we, we just rebuilt the grass courts two years ago. So we've got, um, uh, we've got uh, what I would imagine are the best grass courts in the U.S. We're, we're just a step or seven shy of Wimbledon and Queens Club, but that's okay. Uh, the the courts are spectacular. We've uh, we've uh, you said it really well, Craig. I mean, it is a hidden gem. It's um, it is a the the and I've played um, at most historic venues across the across the globe, and I, I say all the time that this is. This is the singular most historic venue in our sport from the standpoint of it's been entirely preserved. Uh, we live within a historic district, so we're not allowed to make uh, adaptations to the, uh, to the property. And um, what, what you come and see in 2021 is what you would have seen in 1881 when it, when it, when it first hosted the U.S. Nationals. And the, the crazy thing, people, like the tiebreaker was created there by James Van Allen. The name of the, tur- the tournament trophy is the Van Allen Cup. And yeah. the stories is like that J- James Van Allen literally put the players, like, bunked, bunked in the Hall of Fame. They bunked right in there. There was bunk beds in there. It's totally incredible. Every time Rod Laver is at a uh, Hall of Fame event, that's the story he tells. It's like, you know, I had a cot. I mean, not even like bunk. I had a cot. A cot. Up, yeah, up <laughs> in the museum. You know, these cats slept in the Hall of Fame. And the Hall of Fame is cool. I love the Hall of Fame. And I had the pleasure of attending 
Kofelnikov's induction and just this past year when Goran and Conchita went in and it's like it's like going to fantasy camp man yeah it it is and it's the you know the, the one of the one of the beauties of the property is it, it's um although it's seven and a half eight acres it's pretty intimate as well and so you know, our our 3000 plus uh person stadium gives you a pretty good ex- uh, experience of watching the uh, of watching the tennis on the on the court but there's just brick walkways throughout the property that um, at one moment you could be walking uh past Rosie Casals the next moment you could be walking past Jensen Brooksby or or whomever and that's uh yeah it's a it's got a um when we bring the tennis world here it's got a festival nature to it um that is um i, I think uh, i think important for us to understand and to um experience because it's it's um you know the sport in 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 most ways and in good ways um has become very you know very commercialized over the years the the, the courts have been highly criticized for years and years on the inside on the outside and i gotta say i was blown away by how good the tennis was this year because you guys fixed the courts the court the the courts were the courts were beautiful so my first ever atp tournament that i played in was here um and that was in 1990 and I hadn't, uh, I'd, I'd only played on two, in, in two grass court tournaments as a junior in Philadelphia. And I came here and I was like, geez, these courts aren't very good. Um, I came back and I said, these courts aren't very good. I came to work here and I said, these courts aren't very good. And finally, we, um, we, we, we ultimately made a commitment to um, uh, making, the, making the courts right. Um, I knew that the players would love the experience. Um, the play and 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 it was an in, intentional element not to replicate Wimbledon's courts. We cannot try to be them. From I mean the the expense that they incur to uh, keep the courts the way they do, which is basically like a hard court with some leaves on top. Um, th- that would be prohibitive at, at the very at the very best um but also I, I find it really nice to be able to provide a court that's different for the guys that they, they are when they come here they are still uh, rewarded if not told get to the net you know you, you, the, the ball bounces let's call it 10 to 15 percent lower than it does at Wimbledon uh and you know they're they're rewarded when they come to the net they're not they're not punished which is fun to watch today's uh, talent play like that no doubt variety and is is the spice of life and it's also in tennis it's quickly been homogenized the courts and the and the way these guys are playing and and you can definitely see that there's different there's different ways to win matches in Newport um, I really loved every second of it let's move into the second set This is the On the Court Report. You said it, man. Jensen Brooksby finaled your tournament, and then he went from a 
170 to he's in the top he's in the top 60 now. I think he he landed yep. 55. Yep. He took the Newport crowd on a ride, and it was so fun. Well, he uh, he would have received a wild card from us, but uh, ultimately got straight in uh, to the tournament. The reason we would have given him a wild card was he, he's he's one of the few people who didn't ask for a wild card before the tournament. But we would have given him a wild card um, based, you know, he had had a 21 and two record in the uh, in challengers uh, up to that point in time in 2021. I mean, that's it doesn't matter the, the level of play at the challenger level is really high. And to win that many matches uh, and frankly, to lose that infrequently, uh, it requires you to be a really good competitor. Uh, I was surprised by the way he played. I, I, I didn't have familiarity with how uh, how he played tactically. Um, I was enamored by it, watching him play here. But I also thought, um, I wonder how it will translate to uh, to hard courts. And you know, can he get away with that sort of uh, funky looking and and really not penetrating slice backhand once in a while? And, Will the drop shots be as effective on hard court? A bunch of things. I thought you were going to say the serve. Well, you know, listen, I, I think I think it's easier to manage in, in this day and age. I think it's easier to manage a serve. If, I mean, his second serve is attackable at this point in time, but it's easier to manage a serve in some ways than it is to manage any type of weakness from from the from the from the ground. Um, but I said, I said in our um, awards presentation that he had a head, head and the heart of a champion. And, um, you know, the only other primary component that you need is our legs. And he's got a great set of legs on him, too. So he's, he moves great, but his level of focus and, um, and commitment to what he is supposed to be doing uh, is Frankly, it's it's higher than I have seen from a, from a, a young player in a long time, and and he's got a feel for the game that I would attribute uh, or compare to uh, Andy Murray when Andy first uh, when when Andy first started playing. I, just, I remember I in the during the final I, I saw you and I, I asked you about him and I said you know the serve is so bad and he said it's not it's not that bad. He moves it around the box and he defends so well that it'll improve. Do you stand by that? Oh, for sure. I mean, I, listen, I, I served really well. Um, Amazing. But, but my, the best part of my game or the, the reason I was successful was because I returned really well. Um, and everything in between was sort of okay. But I, um, if somebody were to commit to play against Brooksby the way that I used to play, which was every time there was a second serve, it was feast, 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 take risk, charge. And, you know, I, I think, I, and, and there were a lot of guys like me back in the, uh, you know, 20 years ago, but I think that um, considering players are returning serve from, you know, second serves from, you know, five feet, maybe 15 feet behind the baseline. If he can figure out how to, how to just get a little bit more action on the second serve and, uh, and pick up the speed from, you know, sort of 75 to 85 to, you know, 85 to 95, 
I think he'll protect himself really, really well because he defends. I mean, he just – he knows where he's supposed to be. He reads the play just remarkably well. And, um, and, and again, it, you know, it's, it's the head, the heart, and the legs. And, he's, and he does all of that really, really well. Density Brooks beyond the move. Have you had any conversations with uh, Dean Goldfine about Sebastian Corda? And what do you quickly tell us about Sebastian Corda? Well, you know, Dean uh, Dean was my coach for seven years and one of my dearest friends in the world. So I'm um, oftentimes speaking with him, uh, and and from now and now and again, we we get into greater detail about Sebastian. But um, you know, I. I see what everybody else sees in Sebastian. It's just a really clean, uh, clean sort of comprehensive game. And um, as he, uh, as he matures, I, I think he's going to, he's going to compete better and better and be, uh, and be, and be successful. I think uh, um, there's no reason to believe that he or Brooksby won't be uh quite successful in the in the future i think we've got to be really careful not to anoint these uh young players to that they're going to be world beaters but i, I think they're going to be successful and and i think they can su sustain success um and if they it, it what and I, I do believe that that sebastian in a different way um possesses some of those same qualities as uh, as jensen does in that I think he's really quite focused and um, uh, and mature on the court, and you know that does put him in a better position to have success, or put both of them in a better position to have success long term and at a higher level uh, than uh, than those who you know sort of come in and come out. And you know, I, I think uh, as there there are moments where um, you can almost see how much social media. The, the guys do off the court uh, because their you know their their um, their ability to uh, sustain attentiveness just is clearly not there. But these two these two seem really 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 well focused. <laughs> just drew a correlation between the uh, inactivity of those two on social media to their laser focus on the court. Well, I and and Craig, I, I'm not. I mean, I, I look at Twitter probably once a week <laughs> and uh, and I post maybe once a year. Um, so I don't even know if they're on social media, but um, I've got three teenagers and I um, and I certainly see a higher level of focus out of out of those two out of those two 20 somethings than I do out of my uh, out of my three teenagers. Man, you've got three teenagers. We got so old. <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> How'd you do with his father, by the way, when you were on tour? Yeah, I, uh, you know, Peter and I played several times. I don't know how I did with him, but I, I didn't do poorly and I didn't dominate him. So um, probably the best match I played against him was at, uh, in Prague in Davis Cup. I, I think I beat him in straight sets. Um, uh, but yeah, I mean, he was a, he was a great player. He was somebody that I actually liked playing. I didn't mind playing lefties. And, um, I, I, as I said earlier, I, I love to attack second serves and Peter's serve was a little bit vulnerable. The second serve was a little bit vulnerable when, when he wasn't sharp. 
and Peter Corder were sharp though, it was something special to see. And I feel like uh, Seb, I feel like Seb is kind of got some real smoothness and cleanness. What do you think about that? Yeah, the only thing that doesn't seem hereditary is his serve, because his serve <laughs> is really quite good. Um, his, I mean, his forehand's better than his dad's was as well. Mm. But, um, boy, you know, his his dad, um, his dad knew how to play, and um, and also knew who he was as a player. Um, he there was never a day where he didn't um, try to beat people up with his backhand. Um, and, uh, and I, you know, I think, um, Peter, uh, Peter did an amazing job of believing in himself. When he started to feel good, you could tell you, you could look across the court and you could see a sense of confidence and belief that, um, that was, um, that was imposing. I'm coming to you uh, from Guayaquil, Ecuador. I'm uh, actually attending uh, Andres Gomez's challenge. And Are you? I am. And uh, the, seven, the number one seed, 78 in the world, lost to 156. The tennis is shockingly unbelievable. The way these guys are grinding, it's incredible. The... The money they're making is shockingly low. Can you speak to the that sort of prize money inequality, that issue? Well, uh, you know, Craig, it was um, wasn't that long ago, uh, and you can and I fortunately in my in my role I get to hear uh, stories from the likes of Emerson and Laver and. Billie Jean and you know it wasn't that long ago that that people were playing for the love of the game right they were figuring out how to get from Guayaquil to Toronto to wherever barnstorming doing whatever they could to drive the sport forward uh, and to be able to pursue a passion that 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 they that they loved and um to see that the game has progressed so much um, at the elite, elite, elite levels is is um, heartening for me. I mean, I, I do feel like uh, my peers and I didn't get in the way of that progression. Um, I was president of the Player Council of the ATP for several years, and um, there was a there was a moment where somebody came uh, came onto the council and um and suggested raising the prize money for early rounds and decreasing the prize money for those winning the tournaments and to me that i had a, a lot of issue with that because it seemed socialistic right I, I just believe that we need you know we need to reward those who have success not just not not just uh you know try to balance it balance it out um the the i was probably right and i was probably to a degree wrong with uh, with my with my stance um and i think at this point in time the sports uh the sports economy is such that we can be way more creative about how to sustain more players than we are um the winner of the 
U.S. Open uh, made north of three million dollars. I don't know what it. I don't know what the actual uh, check was. Um, and the win, the loser of the first round probably made more than fifty thousand dollars. Jensen Brooksby for losing in the finals of the Hall of Fame Open in a normal year. We had a twenty percent reduction in prize money this year, but in a normal year wouldn't make much more than $50,000. That doesn't compute to me. Um, and then you, then you talk about what's happening in Waikil and, and, and other challengers. Um, the Milwaukee Brewers compete with the New York Yankees. They do so in part thanks to a luxury tax that right. the New York Yankees have to pay. If, if the winner of the U.S. Open uh, and this year, I mean, look at Emma Raducanu, right? What was her career prize money before that tournament? <laughs> so now, believe me, what she achieved in that tournament is a m remarkable, miraculous. Historical. And, and she should be rewarded for it. But if she were rewarded at the level of $2 million as opposed to three and a half or whatever it is, do you not think that she would have felt rewarded? She's rewarded because she's holding the trophy, right? That is, that is something that will never change. She will have her name etched in that trophy forever. And um, so what I, would, what I would advocate for, and, and I, would, I would advocate for it throughout the sport, is how do, how do we... Um, uh, how do we balance out the compensation of uh, for the players throughout the sport from the from the Grand Slam level down through the Challenger, uh, so that we you know we can sustain right? If if somebody's coming from Uzbekistan or Kenya and can really play, boy, they've they got to figure out how to do it really really quickly or have somebody around them that's just got significantly uh, deep pockets that can fund their career. Um, it, takes, it takes time and it's not fair uh, for us. It's not good for our sport. Forget fairness. It's not good for our sport to see people who have uh, the potential of being great tennis players have such a short runway for for establishing themselves so to me i would just you know figure out how much money can be distributed in prize money this is we're not talking at all about uh dis distribution of revenues or net revenues um but boy if we could if we could play for more if 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 we could play for more money at more tournaments uh, we would sustain. We would sustain, you know, 300, 300 players for a period of time. Um, the other thing is, I, I would love to see some sort of card, um, some some sort of card system where, um, if you if if you did so well, if Jensen Brooksby did so well, or Brandon Nakashima did so well to achieve a level of success at the challenger level. How do we figure out a way to give them uh, a, a, a longer runway on the ATP than to just 
count the days before those points from from the challenger go off the system and they don't have a job any, uh, at the at the top level anymore. I think there's um, I don't have I don't have deeper solutions, but I, I do think that both of those would get us to a point where um, where where we would see where we would where we would see people from all corners of the earth uh, figure out how to how to make a career in this game. We, Craig, the other thing I would say, and this is way less politically correct than mm. all of what I just said, we got to figure out how to get people off the off the tour as well. Um, mm. You know, in order to make space for uh, the next the next crop of talent, you know, baseball, basketball, football, they say goodbye to players because they 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 need to retool their teams. Uh, but if if somebody's ranked 200 in the world for 10 years, at, at a certain point in time, we've got to encourage them to 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 move on with real life and um and and because that's also better for them uh in their long run if if they're able to play until 40 years old and then they have to figure out how to how to sustain a living the rest of their lives that's the the earlier they learn those lessons the better let's move into the third set it's the this is the portion of our show where we talk about your career hey really quickly did i win or lose the second set Man, we're, everybody wins here. Okay. Everybody right. wins here, baby. <laughs> uh, it sounds like you did a Midwest World Tour. I, I'm not entirely sure. I know you were born in Illinois and you grew up in Lansing, Michigan. Where does your tennis begin? So my tennis began in um, Northeast Ohio. My dad worked for Goodyear in, uh, in Akron, and then um, until I was ten, Goodyear tires. So, yeah, Goodyear rubber and tire. Yeah. What, what 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 did he do? He was in their legal department. Okay. And um, so I started playing tennis uh, near Kent State, uh, and you know, once a week during the summers, every day in the summers, once a week in the winters, till you know, a couple times a week during the winters, I learned the game. Um, you know, in the in the mid seventies, uh, and I learned it very well. I was I was taught the fundamentals of the game so well. My uh, a fellow named Ted Sawyer was really the the guy who was most integral in that early foundation being established. I got to the point at ten where I was competing, but I was to say I was the low man on the totem pole at a fairly competitive junior program would have been generous to me. Uh, and then when, when my dad got transferred up to Michigan, up to Lansing, um, I, um, you know, there was, it was a one shop town and the, the, the head pro managing, uh, managing director of the business, uh, is, uh, Rick was Rick Furman. And that's your and that's your guy. That's the one. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, Rick's the best educator um, I've ever come in into contact with, uh, and he, I played three days a week through the through the school year until I went to college. Uh, so I, I, you know, it was by no means a um, uh, a sell my soul to the sport child. My parents, I, I would have. My parents wouldn't let me. Um, so I kept playing basketball and 
stick ball, football, you know, touch, you know, touch football in my neighbors, just like whatever I could do. So I still got 20, 25 hours worth of physical activity in, a, in the course of a week. But six of those were dedicated to tennis. And, um, you know, Rick, uh, Rick, I, I never talk about Rick without referencing just how great of an educator he was. But he's a, I mean, he's a spectacular, spectacularly successful man. He, he ended up being the executive director and chief operating officer of the USTA uh, for seven years. Um, so, you know, from, from very humble Lansing, Michigan, just operating a tennis club, but he, uh, he, he ended up leading a, you know, a several hundred uh, million dollar business uh, at the USTA. When did you start getting good? When did you start getting, you know, tall? Were you always just like the tallest kid around? Well, I got, I got good when I stopped getting tall. <laughs> um, mm. I, I was getting tall early and, you know, I, I was, uh, I was just, uh, I was four noodles and, you know, and a piece of riga, you know, four, <laughs> four, 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 four spaghetti and a piece of rigatoni down the middle. You know, it's just like, um, uh, and then, you know, I was, uh, I was uh, late to puberty and, you know, so sort of at the 16, 17, 18 year old range is when I went from being somebody who was uh, able to play in national tournaments to somebody who was succeeding um, nationally. Sorry. So were you playing Orange Bowl, Eddie Herr? Were you going to Florida for camps? No, none of that. So I, I would play the Easter Bowl because my, my grandparents lived in Florida, so it was, it was generally a, a, an easy um, detour uh, on spring break. Uh, never the Orange Bowl. Eddie Hurd didn't exist back in the day. Okay. Uh, and, uh, but, you know, I'd play, I'd play two national tournaments, maybe three national tournaments a year uh, in the second year of an age group. I never had a... Uh, a ranking in the first year of an age group until my first year of 18s. When did you first lay eyes on Mal? When did you first lay eyes on Andre, on Pete, on Chang, on Courier? So uh, Mal early because he lived an hour away from me in Flint, um, but he was a year ahead of me and, you know, he wouldn't have known me from Adam uh, until uh, he invited or until he was my host at, at the University of Michigan on my recruiting visit. Um Oh, that's funny. Uh, I, I saw, uh, I saw Andre, Jim, Michael, and Pete all in like the second in my second year at twelve and unders at the nationals, and they were, you know, they were already clearly uh, better than the rest. Uh, another guy that uh, grew up in Ohio, who I knew, uh, Ty Tucker, was also was also there. Ty Tucker and, uh, had a he was a highly touted junior didn't yeah. quite come through yeah but he's uh been a world beater at ohio state as the coach for uh right right right, right. quite a while now but okay these you know these guys were i don't think this happens very often i think it happens less and less these days but um all all of those uh except for ty all all of those four super greats that were my peers ultimately um they all looked the part when they were 12 and they were, you know, it, it's one of those few generations where, the, you know, the, 
and there are others that didn't make it, but those four were clearly uh, so highly touted for the future, and and they, uh, you know, they fulfilled those uh, those expectations. Now, did you see Pete with a two-handed backhand? I did. I don't remember it, but okay. I, I, I remember him. He was uh, what I remember was he was using the white Knizel, uh <laughs> the white star. Yeah, early on, early on, and I thought, boy, maybe if I used that racket, I'd play better. <laughs> what prompted Northwestern? Uh, so uh, Paul Torricelli was the head coach when I played. Um, he was there for almost 25 years in total, but he was our intersectionals coach for the Midwest. Um, and so he took – he took a group of us in the summer from all over the Midwest down to Columbia, South Carolina. And um, at, the, at the time, he was uh, the college coach of a, a fellow named Marco Wen, who played at my high school. And so I had, a, I had a reason, you know, I had a connection to Paul through Marco uh, and, yeah, bonded with Paul. I, I still was looking at other schools like uh, TCU and Michigan. But then when I went on my recruiting visit, there was, there, there was clearly a fit. And I don't know what I could put my finger on as far as what, what that fit really was, but there was clearly a fit. Uh, I felt uh, very comfortable with Paul. Uh, I liked the guys on the team and, um, and, and, I, and I knew I was going to college for two reasons. I was going to college to get a degree and 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 grow academically, but uh, but also grow as a tennis player. Um, it just so happened that I grew more as a tennis player than an academic. Would it be fair to say your parents were hammering you to go to the best academic school? Not at all. Okay. Uh, I, I you know my parents were both. Um, my, you know, my father was a, an attorney and my mom uh, has her master's in phys ed and was a health and phys ed uh, teacher in high school or uh, at the high school level. Um, my sister went to grad school as well, also, uh, also an attorney. So um, I'm the black sheep of the family as far as my level of education. <laughs> but, um, but also, I, I, I think my parents uh, had a high level of wisdom as to uh, not wanting uh, outcome for, for us, but wanting, uh, you know, wanting process and wanting growth and, you know, sending me to uh, sending me to an academic institution that was far above my abilities uh, would have been uh, detrimental. And, and, and frankly, Northwestern was close to that. I mean, I really, really struggled at Northwestern as a student. Um, some of that was self-inflicted. Some of that was just because it was a, a highly competitive uh, uh, university. You struggled. Oh, yeah. Oh, my, mightily, mightily. And, um, and I'm not overstating that. It's, huh. but, but at the end of the day, it's one of the great it's one of the things I value most about my collegiate experience was the, 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 the failing <laughs> that I was doing because it, it, it challenged my resolve in a place other than, you know, a 78 by 36 foot tennis court. It was, um, I was close to dropping out my freshman, you know, sort of 
January, February of my freshman year. And, you know, I was encouraged to stick it out for the year. And I, I, I wouldn't say I thrived, but I thrived in the environment, um, ultimately. Um, I continued to struggle academically, but I, I figured out how better to manage it. And, um, and I, I would never look at it and say I'm worse for the wear for that for that I am uh, I am better at um, pretty much everything in my life because of that struggle do you believe in college tennis uh, absolutely I am um, I'm a big believer in college tennis I just am not a big believer in it being the right thing for everybody what made you turn pro how what were the what were those machinations what happened there so I played um, I played second singles my freshman year behind uh, a fellow who I was just a year ahead of me in uh, from Michigan as well named uh, a guy named Steve Fertuiza um and you know to me that was uh that was one of my first fail failures in um in tennis at at school it was like how can I not you know how can I not play ahead of Steve right and like I I had been the state champion his senior year and my junior year in high school like how can I not be ahead of him? And then I did okay throughout my freshman year. Um, but then I, uh, like most like most players with my aspirations, played in satellites or what what are now futures and challengers that that summer. And I finished second on a, a series of four uh, of four satellite tournaments or you know the equivalent. Uh, I won a challenger and I lost in the finals of another challenger and I beat the returning number one player in college tennis. O and O that summer. I mean, like I, I, I just like the moment I didn't have to study and be in the library. And, like it, it was like the, the, it was like the animal was uncaged and I, and I was, a, and I really benefited from all of that growth I went back to college, had a really good sophomore year, um, um, and uh, you know, basically sustained that level of play or close to it. And then um, the summer after my sophomore year, I started playing with without school in my head and did really well again. And I just felt like it was, it, it felt like it was time and it was time to see if I could um, sustain that level of uh, progress with 100% focus on on the sport, uh, but it was also time probably for me to say, if I'm going if I'm going to struggle academically, um, you know, for two years that makes sense, right? And to learn the ropes, but at the at the end of the day. Um, if if I'm going to need that education to be the driver of all things moving forward, I'm going to have to do better in school. So I decided to go and focus 100% on, on tennis. And if that didn't work, then I could come back and focus 100% on school. And I do think I would have done better academically then. Was there one specific day, one match, one week, one tournament, one win that made you say, oh, you know what? I could get really, really good. Was there one match that sticks out? I think that, I think that summer after my freshman year, mm. um, there's, there's a lot of that summer that, that gave me the confidence that, that my goal of playing professional tennis 
at a high level should be a goal and not a dream. Like I, you know, I lived most of my childhood as with it as a dream. And I, you know, I definitely was intentional about it, adjusting it and making it a goal um, while I was still in high school. But this was the first sort of affirmation of it being a legitimate achievable goal. Um, I, I don't know. Um, probably yeah. the, my first French open um, in 91, I qualified and made it to the fourth round. And I mean, minus the fact that I got absolutely pummeled by uh, Jim Courier in the fourth round. I think that was really the first indication that, um, that my definition of playing tennis at a really high level started to change. Do you recall when you cracked the top hundred, how did you crack the top hundred? Oh, it was probably in 1992, but I don't know that I was two years into a career and I, you know, that mine was not a meteoric rise. Right. Um, but I, I, I want to say in 92, I, I made it to the third round of the U S open lost to Sam. I think I lost to Pete that year. Um, uh, in, in a great match in a five set, in a five set match. But I had, I had, I think I, I played 19 tournaments. I was in 19 main draws that year. I might've not made it out of qualities a couple of times, but in 19 main draw tournaments, I think I lost first round three times, which is at that, at that level, pretty, pretty good. But I only made it to the third round, maybe twice or whatever. I mean, it was, it, so, but I think, I, I think that, you know, I won enough matches that year, I think, to have gotten me into the top 100. How important was Robert Vanthoff to that moment? And yeah. let me just ask, who is Robert Vanthoff to you? So Robert was, was my first professional private coach, if you will. I hired him. Uh, I met him through the USTA um, um, player development program. Uh, I uh, worked with Robert in my third year um, in that program and my third and last uh, year in that program. So I needed, I needed to um, start to become independent of the USTA by, by mandate of the USTA, um, which I think is a good policy, just so you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They cut the cord. They say it's time well, to go. Well, they should. I yeah, mean, that's, you right. Know, I, we sh we should get to a point where we can can take what they have given us and and make hay off of it. Um, so Robert was um, Robert was a really important part of my transition from uh, dependence to independence. Uh, I had a uh, I had a lot of success in those couple of years that I worked with Robert uh, both. Uh, I, I guess I, I, I sort of worked with Robert for about three years. Um, uh, one year with uh, through the USTA, and then two years independently or mm. privately. Uh, and I, you know, he was he was uh, vitally important in my ability to transition into um, a successful, sustainable uh, career. Did he make you better? Oh, for for sure. For sure. I mean, I, X's I still, and O's. How did you get better? How do you get to four in the world? Really? I mean, how do you do that? How do you get better? Well, I think, I think for me it was 
was hearing loads of different voices. Um, you know, Rick, as great of an educator as he was, he shoved me in front of people who could give me different information. So Nick Saviano, as a, as a junior player, when I went over to Europe with the USDA national team, uh, Jose Higueras is, you know, my, my professional mentor. I, mean, I spent all 14 years of my professional career uh, sucking out every bit of information I could get from Jose. And then Robert was uh, another important and a different, uh, you know, a different perspective. Dean was a different perspective. Um, you know, Jose, uh, Jose would, Jose got me to understand. Uh, well, Rick was a very discussive, analytical teacher, and so in six hours on the court with him, or, or in group and a little bit privately with him. I got so much information. I didn't hit so many balls, but I got so much information, and that worked for me. Um, with Jose, I transitioned from that type of setting to very much a, you know, okay, this is, this is work. This is, this is physical, emotional, and mental work that you have to do day in and day out in order to get better. And, it, you know, that stuck. And then Robert brought with him a Southern Cal sensibility, you know, very, very level, easygoing, but also, you know, this is how the game is played. This is how the game is played. Like, you know, he learned from Robert Landstorp, you know, he helped me with some, he helped me with some technical things, which honestly, I didn't think I needed help with, but, but he did. What's an example of that? Like a technical thing that, that got adjusted in pro tennis for you? Can you give an example? Yeah, so there's two things. Uh, one that I attribute to Jose and one that I attribute to Robert. Uh, with Robert, you know, I was coming to the net all the time, and I had learned, you know, a very traditional volley technique. And he said, boy, you know, when the ball's sitting up, you, can, you, should, you should actually slap at the volley a little bit. Use your hand and snap, that, snap the forehand volley when it's, when it's high. And I looked at him, I, I swear, I looked at him like he had 50,000 heads because that was so wrong, in my opinion. And then he, you know, he fed me a few balls and he, you know, slowly convinced me to loosen up, loosen up, loosen up. And it was, it was spot on. I mean, I never, I never for another day um, tried to be stiff and firm and all these, you know, sort of. Um, myths about uh, about volleys in certain ways and I let my hand and it helped everywhere I, I really let my hand do way more of the work uh, at, at the net especially with high forehand volleys with Jose I uh, Jose the way Jose teaches is by challenging you to make the ball do certain things as opposed to let me stop you for one second for our listeners Jose Higueras famously the coach of Jim Courier when Jim Courier went to one, one of the preeminent tennis men in American tennis for, it seems like our lifetimes. Yeah. So, I mean, to me, Jose is, uh, Jose is the, the best tennis coach, the best professional tennis coach I could ever have hoped to come by. Nobody knows who's the best anyway. 
So I watched a video, I don't know, let's call it 98 of that French Open that I mentioned that was 1991. So seven years later, I hadn't talked to Jose about my forehand technique once. I turned on the video of that 91 French Open and I did not recognize that forehand. It, it was, to say it was different is an understatement of understatements. But because Jose had challenged me to play over a six foot net as opposed to a three foot net and learn how to spin the ball, right? I mean, I played just so, I played so hard and so flat when I was young. Um, and he taught me how to, he taught me how to play the game. He taught me how to feel the game. And lo and behold, in order to play the game the right way, I needed to have my technique changed and it changed but it changed on my own doing because I needed to see the ball do it, doing something different. So like the backswing of my forehand in 91 was remarkably direct. It was still looping, but it was remarkably low and direct or straighter. And, you know, and in 98, I was, you know, vertical and, and, and just, a completely different stroke uh, entirely. Do you know how many players have won on all surfaces? Yeah, I have no, I have no clue. No yeah. clue. Is that something you're proud of? I don't think a lot of people know that you have a win at Barcelona. That you won on clay, you won on grass, you won on hard, you won on indoor hard. Is that something that's a proud achievement? I don't think I ever won on indoor carpet. So that might be a... Um, but yeah, I think it's, uh, it, is, uh, it is a nice thing for me as a player. And I don't, I don't look at my biography as a tennis player and say, boy, I wish I would have done that or I'm so proud of this. Listen, I, I, got, to, I got to go to work in shorts for a long time and play, and play the child's game that it is and and make a living and you know that the the life that i've lived is what i'm most gratified by but it is also um when i was playing and when i cared more about all of that you know i won two on i won two tournaments on clay and only one tournament on grass and i don't think uh, anybody would have uh, believed that if they would have just read a, a piece of paper and not been familiar with my uh, play. Well, wait, because Coral Springs was on clay. Yeah. You want, that was your first tournament you won, Coral Springs. Yeah. That's an, I remember being tight to the tour then. I was right in that pocket of my moment. And I remember everyone just was like, I think you beat, you beat Barasategui in the final. I mean, that was an incredible effort. That, who were you in 98? You had a, you had a nice moment. Uh, so, listen, nothing happens without a little good luck. I played with uh, I, my last practice session before that tournament started with, was with Alex Krejcia, who is a dear friend. And we went out. We had the court maybe because I was playing with a Spaniard. I was probably, we probably had the court for an hour and a half. I didn't want an hour and a half worth of practice. I was... You know, I had to play the next day. But we went out. He said, since we have the court for 
by ourselves for an hour and a half. Do you want to just you just want to play? And I said, great, let's 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 do it. So we played a practice set. Uh, well, we actually played a practice set and a half or two thirds and a tiebreaker. I was down six o four o and lost the tiebreaker to Alex the day before <laughs> uh, the day before the tournament started. But that you know all that convinced me was. I'm not a clay quarter. I better not try to play like I'm from Barcelona. So I certain volleyed, I attacked, I, I basically tried to convert that clay court into a, into a, into a hard court or a grass court. And what I found out is I match up way better with the clay quarters than I do with the other hard quarters. Right. I mean, like Sampras on clay was brutal for me, but Barisategui was like, yeah, all right. I get to play. I get to play Alberto today. I like that. Um, so it's amazing. Yeah, it's a it's a funny game when you when you start to really think about how the puzzle pieces fit in to one another across the net. Your best moment on tour? I don't know if I have the ability to distinguish one. You know, there's loads of great experiences. So many of them off the court. Um, so many of them learning about others and other cultures and um, and getting to know people from all corners of the earth. Um, on the court, uh, winning Barcelona was, um, uh, it had been a really tough, uh, a tough period of time for me. My dad had passed away um, uh, probably about six months earlier and I had been recovering from injury. So it was like the first bit of success that, that I had after um, some some really tough times. Um, so that's high on the list. Uh, winning the Davis Cup in 95 and, and being a contributing part of, uh, of that was, uh, was special. Um, but probably the most memorable is losing to Pat Rafter in Davis Cup in Boston in 99. Um, mm. I was sick, um, played, played well, figured out how to you know almost get to the finish line um, in first place? I still got to the finish line. It just so happened to, I got I got there in second place. And um, but it's those moments. It's those moments where you learn a little bit more about yourself. That um, at the end of the day is is most valuable. I was not the guy who valued myself as an entertainer. I, I, you know that sports is about competition and um, and. and Coming, to, coming together to try to get better. And I feel like it's, it's moments like that with Pat, who uh, I adored as a competitor, um, that were most gratifying and, to me, made, made me better um, on the court, off the court. I know for me, in my work, in my life, that the losses somehow resonate more than the wins. Sometimes they, they, they usurp the the losses hurt more than the wins feel good. Um, would that be fair to say for you or have you reconciled some of those tough losses that you, that you had? Well, I think, I think both. I think there's a, there's a, there's a natural masochism that exists in us. Right. I mean, Jose was the first one to ever tell me, he said, you know, there's some boxers who prefer to get hit first um, to, to spark the fight. You know, like okay, now I'm mad, and now it's now it's time to go. I liked getting hit. I liked losing, not because it felt good, but because I felt like it was going to lead to progress. Um, 
uh, I wish I, I do. I mean, and, and, and I don't have regrets, but if I were to do it all over again, um, I would have, um, I would have learned to really enjoy the success more than I did. Um, uh, and I knew I was successful and I enjoyed it, but I didn't, um, I didn't let that sort of propel me into deeper and deeper belief and um, confidence that I was going to win the next and the next and be the, you know, be up on top of the mountain forever. Um, I think the, I think the guys who are spectacular in this game have the same have a similar quality as I did as far as how to handle the disappointments, but they also had uh, or have um, the ability to have success be a flywheel. And um, for me, that I, I maybe it was because I I was uh, I was taught to be humble, and I you know I got I was conflicted in 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 some of that. Uh, and perhaps it, um, you know, perhaps it was just, it's just who I am. Could you have done better? Or are you, do you feel like you left it all out there? Are you happy with, are you feel proud of your career? I'm going to, I'm going to be, um, I mean, both. Yeah. Both. I mean, we are all categorically underachievers. Nobody achieves at the level that we that we are capable of not roger not rafa not novak not serena not margaret court not ken rosewall none of us are um i i do feel like i squeezed the sponge pretty dry um there were things that uh, i could have done more of could have done differently but hindsight is not something that uh, we have the benefit of, and um, so I'm I'm both very comfortable and pleased with being able to look back on my career the way I do, um, but also know that I'm you know I'm just as flawed in 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 that pursuit of excellence as as anybody else would be. Well, listen, man, I looked at, you know, I was getting ready for this interview. I looked at, you know, your road to the finals of the, of the majors that you, some of the matches you played are like unbelievable. I, I loved, I loved to play tennis. So I tried to squeeze <laughs> it up court time as, uh, as I could. Oh my God. Some of these matches were like first round, Stefan Hewitt, 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 breaker in the fifth, was it? So I don't remember many, <laughs> yeah. but I think that score was six one six one six seven six seven seven six. It's the that, sickest. Oh, that uh, Craig. There were times where I literally, I, <laughs> I, I I couldn't look at myself in the mirror. I made things so difficult on myself at, at times. But yeah, listen, man. I hope you're proud of your career. It is. It is stellar. Thank you. Let's move into the fourth set. This is the 10 ball scramble. We do not do a deep dive. I say it and you say what comes in your mind. Okay. Big entourage or lean and mean? Lean and mean. Is your golf better than your tennis? No, regrettably. 
your tennis is better than your golf still. I mean, I, my tennis will be better forever. I mean, I, there's no chance I can get as good at, at tennis as I am at, or at, at, at golf as I am at tennis. Wait, but I heard you were like a scratch or a two or something. Yeah, well, no, I, I, at one point in time, I got close to being a scratch. I'm no longer, I'm about a three now, but I, I, I'd like to think I'm better than a scratch in tennis still. You can still play really good tennis? You still playing really good tennis? Do you play? Well, I, I just had spine surgery, so I'm a little ways away from uh, from that. But yeah, I mean, I yeah, I mean, it's a bike. It's it's a bike for us. Like, there's no way that we won't be able to play the game. Should there be a 1,000 level ATP grass tournament? And and should there be on the women's side too? Should there be a high level grass tournament? I, th- the quick answer is no, unless it made a lot of sense with within the overall tour. But we have super high-level grass court tournaments. They just don't pay as much prize money. And you know, it's like, so what? Queens is Queens. Queens is Queens. That's a, that, you know. Yeah, that's you win a, Holly, you win, right. Yep. By the way, for our listeners, Todd Martin won Queens. That is no joke. Who would I beat in the finals? I don't have it in front of me. Sam. You beat Sampras. Sam. You beat Pete. Uh, no, I beat I, I beat Sampras in the finals, six oh. and six. And um, that's one of the few times that I smiled when I shook his hand at the end of a match. Do you know your record against Pete? I do. I beat him four times. Can we stop there? <laughs> it seems like, you know, every sort of player – like a like 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 yourself, like a Karecha, they always had that one player that they'd run into over and over and over and over, and it was yeah. sort of the difference between being four or being two or being. You know, Pete was the reason for me being four in a good way and in a bad way. <laughs> he beat me a ton, but he he made me better always. Your favorite racket, the Wilson, Jack Kramer Pro Staff. Why? Because it's what I it's what I learned how to play with the formative years of my of my tennis career and um, uh, my backhand is probably still better with it than uh, graphite. <laughs> the most cavalier thing you ever did with prize money right out of the office. Whew. I bought a Dodge Durango. <laughs> Your perspective on the Naomi Osaka situation quickly. I think it was really poorly handled from uh, from all from all ends. I think uh, if if mental health was the issue, she should have stated it really clearly right up front. And um, I I thought that the the slams didn't need to threaten uh, expulsion from the tournament. They took a gun to a knife fight. Let's move into the fifth and final set. This is the king of the court. If you could be the king of tennis and make a change in the sport with one swing of the racket. Easy peasy, no aggravation. What would it be? I, I would go back. To, uh, well, I'd, I'd make two changes. Can I do that? I, I would, I would rewind the clock, and figure out at some point in time how to um, stop the progression of technology at the high at the highest level. 
Um, I think I'm not a baseball fan, but I do think that baseball's beaten everybody else with main maintaining wood, wood bats for the major leagues. The other is, uh, I, I spoke about it earlier, but a, a distribution of prize money across the tour so that you're sustaining people for the success that they experience over the course of 52 weeks as opposed to uh, one week or another week. Now, you have a foundation. You have your major things coming up. Is that right? Yeah, I leave, uh, I leave tomorrow evening for Lansing, Michigan to um, do a weekend-long fundraiser for Todd Martin Youth Leadership, which is a national junior tennis and learning chapter that uh, Rick Furman, my childhood coach, my dad and I founded uh, creeping up on 30 years ago now. In 1993, we started uh, a program to be able to provide at-risk youth in Lansing, Michigan, where I grew up, an opportunity to learn how to play tennis. It wasn't long after a couple of summer, uh, summers long worth of, uh, worth of camp where we'd, you know, we'd have uh, anywhere from dozens to close to 100 kids per week uh, out, uh, that there was something there. So we started creating a leadership curriculum for the kids. And now we have year-long programming. We're serving um, uh, several thousand kids annually with uh, a variety of different programs, lunchtime tennis, uh, after-school programming, summer camps. But the outcomes for the kids really are, uh, really are special. We've, you know, it's an auto industry community that has been depressed for several years because of the auto industry. Um, it's coming back uh, stronger and stronger as we go. But during this time, uh, especially during COVID, the kids have, um, have really benefited from our programming. And uh, it's an exciting thing when we talk about pride and, you know, what, what do you look back on? I'm not a very a prideful person, but I do get really excited about having left a mark here. There's a Hall of Famer, Dr. Whirlwind Johnson, who was Arthur Ashe's mentor. I went, I went down to Lynchburg, Virginia a couple of years ago to speak, and they had restored uh, Dr. Johnson's tennis court in his yard. And what he had done back in the, in the 50s and 60s was bring African-American tennis players to him from all over the South and mentored them. So he, he put, you know, they were gardening for him. He'd go to work. He was a physician. He'd go to work. He'd give everybody their marching orders for the, for the, for the day. They'd play, they'd study, they'd do all these things. I, I said something in my remarks about Dr. Johnson is that he set out to make an impact, and because of that, he he created a legacy. You know, and and you know, there's I, I'm not I'm not a big legacy guy, but I, I am a big impact guy, and that um, and and the fact that that program has impacted our community uh, is something that I will uh, always be very very proud of. Dr. Rowan Johnson is indeed a Hall of Famer. Yeah, he's. Uh, if 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 your listeners have not uh, ever heard of the name, they should visit uh, the Hall of Fame's website, tennisfame.com, and do a little research on him. 
and the story is much deeper than we than we go to on our on our website. But yeah, this this fellow is uh, one of the more remarkable men uh, in history. Hey man, I enjoyed every second of this chat. It's so great to um, I don't know. I guess see you in this role, see you in my home state, see you at the Hall of Fame that I hold so close to my heart. Thank you very much. Craig, it's great, uh, great to reconnect, and um, uh, loved having the chat. Hopefully, I hopefully I came out three sets to two. <laughs> hey man, we'll see you uh, next. We'll see you next July for certain. Todd Martin, you are released. Thanks much, Craig. Huge thank you to Todd Martin, and thank you to Sergio Tacchini. See them at sergiotacchini.com and use my code SHAP30 in all caps at checkout to receive 30% off of your order. Max Loeb edited the show. Our music is by Brian Senti. We'll be back next time with more of the most interesting voices in the sport. Until then, I'm Craig Shapiro, and you are released.